Good morning, everybody. I just want to welcome you to HCC. We are starting a new series of messages that will focus on the cornerstones of our faith and the gospel message. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. Now, the word gospel literally means good news, and that's the good news about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, I passed on to you what I received, of which this was most important, that Christ died for our sins, as the scriptures say, that he was buried and was raised to life on the third day, as the scriptures stay. So we stand upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the starting point for these cornerstones of our faith, and it's the fact that Jesus died. Now, we don't enjoy talking about it. It's something we have to do because it's critical to our faith. There was an article in Newsweek magazine And it was basically talking about how different religions view Jesus. And they used the views of Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and Christians. And the article concluded with these words. Clearly, the cross is what separates the Christ of Christianity from every other Jesus. In Judaism, there is no precedent for a Messiah who dies, much less as a criminal. In Islam, the story of Jesus' death is rejected as an affront to Allah himself. Hindus can only accept a Jesus who escapes the degradation of death. Buddhists say the crucifixion does no justice to Jesus. The image of a benign Jesus has universal appeal. Most of the world cannot accept the Jesus of the cross. So that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there's something so powerful about the cross of Jesus Christ that it melts a person's heart. And what I want to say this morning is I'm going to point out four different things that kind of stand out about the death of Jesus Christ And the first one is that it was a prophesied death. This wasn't something that just happened by accident. It wasn't something that was just a last-minute thing or a backup plan. This was something God had planned even before the world was created. Look at 1 Peter 1.18. You were rescued from the useless way of life that you learned from your ancestors, But you know that you were not rescued by such things as silver or gold that don't last forever. You were rescued by the precious blood of Christ, the spotless and innocent lamb. Christ was chosen even before the world was created. But because of you, he did not come until these last days. So one of the strongest proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is prophecy. See, there are prophecies that are recorded and predicted hundreds of years before Christ was even born. 
And the Bible tells us what family line he would come from. It says that he would come from the house and lineage of David. And then you can basically trace the line along as different prophets talk about the coming Messiah. The Old Testament prophecies also say that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And in there they say his bones would be protected. Not one of them would be broken, yet he would be pierced by a sword. And prophecy after prophecy not only predicts what is going to happen, but describes it in great detail. So I just want you to close your eyes for a moment because I'm going to read from Math, excuse me, from Psalm 22. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. So just close your eyes and listen to these words and try to visualize Jesus' death. Everyone who sees me makes fun and sneers. They shake their heads and say, Trust the Lord if you're his favorite. Let him protect you and keep you safe. I have no more strength than a few drops of water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like melted wax. My strength has dried up like a broken clay pot, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You, God, have left me to die in the dirt. Brutal enemies attack me like a pack of dogs, tearing at my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, and my enemies just stare and sneer at me. They took my clothes and gambled for them. So you can open your eyes. So David wrote those words 950 years before Jesus was actually born. And it was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented as a method of execution. So God was at work, and we see it as well in what Isaiah wrote. Prophet Isaiah writes this some 700 years before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he was wounded for the wrong we did. He was crushed for the evil we did. The punishment which made us well was given to him, and we are healed because of his wounds. We have all wandered away like sheep. Each of us has gone his own way. But the Lord has put on him the punishment for all the evil we have done. He was beaten down and punished, but he didn't say a word. He was like a lamb being led to be killed. He was quiet as a sheep is quiet while its wool is being cut. He never opened his mouth. So what a scene that must have been for Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's there at the base of the cross that he is hanging on, that he's dying on. And I wonder if she thought back 33 years to that time when she, her husband Joseph, and the eight-day-old Jesus were at the temple together. And do you remember the prediction that Simeon made that day? It's recorded in Luke 2, verse 34. Then he blessed them and told Mary, This child of yours will cause many people in Israel to fall and others to stand. The child will be like a warning sign. Many people will reject him. And you, Mary, will suffer as though you have been stabbed by a dagger. But all this will show what people are really thinking. So that prophecy was actually being fulfilled right in front of her eyes as she watched her son being whipped over and over again and she watched him being crucified. He took on the form of human likeness and he died on the cross. 
It was a prophesied death, but it was more than that. It was also a voluntary death. He willingly chose this. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he actually prayed to God. He said, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus fully understood what he was doing. So when he walked up that hill to where he would be placed on that cross, he knew what that meant. And tradition actually tells us that when Jesus was a teenager, there was an insurrection among the Jews in Palestine. And the Romans were able to kind of quell that they were able to crush that rebellion. But they didn't want it to happen again. So this is what they did. They crucified an Israelite every 10 meters for a distance of 16 kilometers. So that's 1,786 people that were dying or dead on those crosses. And it must have made an incredible impression upon the mind of a teenager. And that's what Jesus saw. And back then, a cross wasn't a trinket that you wore around your neck. It wasn't a symbol. It was a 100-pound instrument of death. And when people saw it, it was gruesome. Writers of the day described the cross as that infamous stake. Some said it's the criminal wood. And then when someone was being crucified, they made them take the longest route possible to get to the place of execution because they wanted to just embarrass them, humiliate them as much as they possibly could. And in spite of Jesus knowing all of this, in spite of understanding about crucifixion, he still chose that path. It was a voluntary death. In John ten seventeen says, The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. So Jesus is making it very clear that this was a voluntary action on his part. It's not something that was forced on him. It was something that he had to do because it was the only way that the world could be saved. It's the only way that sins could be forgiven. Back when I was a kid... My dad was helping my uncle in his garage, which was right at the base of our driveway. And dad was holding on to a part while my uncle had a screwdriver. And he was pressing with all his might. And the screwdriver slipped and went right through the palm of my dad's hand. And if you had ever met my father, 15 in a size ring, that's what he had. And it was all calluses. So for that screwdriver to go through there... But when I saw the blood, you know, as a kid, oh, no, it just grossed me out. But, and Dad got injured quite a few times on the farm. It's not an easy place to work. But then I grew tougher as a teenager, and I'd be playing hockey and get hit with a stick, and I'd be bleeding. And if there was a girl there in the stands that I liked, I'd make sure she saw the blood before I went to the doctor to have it stitched up. Or if I was dating a girl and she was there watching the game, Look at this. Like, I'm so tough. But I wonder if you flinched a little when I talked about that screwdriver going through my dad's hand. But then when I say that they crucified Jesus, when we hear that phrase, like, 
Why do we not have a lump in our throats? Why do we become so callous to it? Because sometimes the same story becomes too old, and time and familiarity just kind of sanitize the suffering of our Savior to the point where it doesn't touch us anymore. It was a prophesied death. It was a voluntary death. And it was a distinctive death. There was something about his death that was different from everyone else. And there were some circumstances that took place that added to that significance. So if you have your Bible, we're in Luke chapter 23 right now, or you can follow along on the screen as we've been doing. But there are a number of things that make his death distinctive to us. First of all, we find a supernatural darkness taking place over the whole area. So we pick up in verse 44. By this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone. So this modern translation actually computes the Jewish system of time for us. In other translations, it will say at the the first hour of the day. Well, the first hour of the day is 6 a.m. in the Jewish time system. Jesus was then crucified and placed on that cross at 9 a.m. And then this event took place on the sixth hour, so at noontime. And it became pitch black over that whole area. Now, some try to explain it by saying, okay, it was just an eclipse of the sun. But that would have actually been scientifically impossible. First of all, because it lasted for three hours. But secondly, because an eclipse of the sun, and we had a meteorologist at the first service, and he didn't correct me on this. We can't have an eclipse of the sun when there is a full moon. And the celebration of the Passover, the time when Jesus was killed, was always during a full moon. So it must have been a frightening sight to those people. They would have had to call for lighted torches in order to be able to see what they were doing. A guy by the name of Douglas Webster said, at the birth of the Son of God, there was supernatural darkness at midnight. But then he said, at the death of the Son of God, there was supernatural darkness at noon. The second thing that stands out is the fact that the temple curtain was torn in two. So this is the second half of that 45th verse. And suddenly, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. And if you're not careful, you actually will miss out on the historical and spiritual implications of what was taking place here. Because this curtain was in the temple. This was the place of worship for the Jews. And that temple excuse me, that curtain separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies. That was where God was present. And the people weren't allowed to have a personal relationship with God like we are. They were separated by that curtain. The high priest was able to go in there once a year to make sacrifices. And when he did that, they would keep him up all night, the night before. They wouldn't let him go to sleep in case he had dreams that would make him unpure. They wanted him to be ceremonially clean when he went in there. 
And then they even tied a rope around his ankle in case he died while he was inside there because nobody else could go in or they would die as well. Their sins weren't forgiven. They were merely just kind of put off for another year. And the gospel tells us that that temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. So that tells us something significant. That tells us that it was God doing this. And he was saying, come on in. You are welcome here. You can now have a personal relationship with me. The third reason his death was distinctive is the fact that there was an earthquake. So we're slipping back to Matthew for a few minutes. Chapter 27 and verse 51. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart. Now we know that an earthquake isn't a miracle. They happen occasionally throughout our world. But the thing that made this one a miracle is the fact that it happened right at the time of Jesus' last breath. And there was another miracle that is spectacular that we can't miss, yet it's something that we don't talk about very much. We, we might read the book of Matthew and just kind of not notice it at all, or maybe we read it and we wonder, whoa, what does this mean? And we just hope that somebody else will explain it for us. But it's the resurrection of the saints. So in verse 52, graves opened, and many of the... God's people were raised to life. Then, after Jesus had risen to life, they came out of their graves and went into the holy city where they were seen by many people. Now, the Bible doesn't say any more about what took place with these people. We don't know if they made a one-time appearance and then went back into the grave or maybe they went on to heaven. But you can just imagine Grandma died 10 years ago, and then Grandma's at your door. And they'd start thinking, oh, no, she's going to want her inheritance back. But, <laughs> but uh, our associate pastor, James, and my wife, Pat, and I attended a series of lectures in Charlottetown three weeks ago, and it was all about Jesus' resurrection narratives. And he brought out this passage, and I noticed something I had overlooked. I thought they came back to life at the time of Jesus' death, but it says it, they come out of their graves after Jesus came out of the grave. So we don't know totally what this means. The one thing we do know is that God is making some type of statement. He's validating and confirming the fact that his son has conquered the grave. And the scriptures tell us that he would be the firstborn from the grave, and that's indeed what happened. And if you want to hear some really neat big words, just ask me afterwards or send me an email that I picked up at those lectures. There's just too much to give you here in a message. There's one more reason that his death was distinctive, and that's because of the changed hearts. Like There were people whose lives were transformed because of what they saw on the cross. There was the thief, we don't know on which side of the cross he was, but his life was changed for all eternity because he came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And then there was the Roman centurion, now who on a regular basis killed people in this way, and he always stood at arm's length. He was off at a distance. He wasn't up close watching them die. But for some reason, he was right there beside Jesus. Something changed his mind that day. 
So you look at verse 47 of that chapter in Luke. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshipped God and said, Surely this man was innocent. And Matthew's account actually goes into greater detail and says that the people were terrified and they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. So what did Jesus say? Or maybe a question should be, what didn't he say that led to the changed hearts of the people who were so near to him? Was it the physical signs of nature and their reaction to the death of Jesus, the earthquake and the darkness? Or was it the fact that he went to that cross? Was it the amazing effort that he put forth in carrying the cross up that hill? Or maybe did he actually crawl onto that cross like everybody else they would fight with? It would take two or three soldiers to get them onto that cross. Maybe it was the fact that he just lied down, he put his arms out, and he kept his hands there so that they could nail the spikes into his hands. We don't know what it was. Maybe it was the fact that he that centurion had never heard someone be placed on that cross and not shout profanities at them, at whoever. Instead, he hears a man whisper, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. So we don't know what it is that changed his mind. Maybe it was all those things together. But he was a different man because he had come into the company of Jesus Christ. So verse 48, when all the people who had gathered there to watch saw what had happened, they returned home beating their chests because they were so sad. So there was something quite distinctive about the manner in which the Lord of Lords faced his death. Now there's one final reason why this death was important, and that is actually the most important of all, and it's the fact that Jesus' death was an atoning death. That Christ died for our sins, as the scriptures say. And the big theological word is atonement. And you could break that down. It's at one meant. And it basically means something is making amends. Something is being brought back together. Something is being made right. So the teaching of atonement is foundational to the Christian faith. And it's deep, but it's something that we need to understand because that's why Christ died for us. Christ didn't die as a martyr. He didn't die as an example of God's love. He didn't die to say, well, this is the way that you should die. He died in our place. But some people will say, well, why couldn't he just forgive us? Why did he have to die in our place? Human beings do that all the time, and that's right, and God helps us to forgive others. But why did he do this? Like one man wrote this answer, and I want to read it so I don't mess it up. But he said, God isn't just the one being wronged by our sin. He's also the judge of the universe. He's the official administrator of the judicial system of this world. As a private individual, he could theoretically forgive us as we forgive others, 
For him to remove our guilt without requiring any payment would destroy the moral fiber of the universe, the distinction between right and wrong. Justice demands payment. So we see this played out when one of the criminals shouted out, well, if you are the Christ, well, save us and save yourself. But Ken Geyer writes, if only Jesus would save himself and us. But Jesus knows something that the man hanging next to him doesn't. He knows that he has to choose one or the other. He can save himself or he can save us. He can't do both. So what's unfolding here is Jesus dying as fulfillment of the Old Testament. And the Bible says in Hebrews 9.22, the law says that almost everything must be sprinkled with blood and no sins can be forgiven unless blood is offered. When Jesus said his final words in his language, he said one word, to telestai, which literally means it is finished. So sometimes that's written on the bottom of an invoice, and it's actually, we write, paid in full. And that's what Jesus did here. As he looks out over the world and all the sins that we've committed, he is saying, look, this is paid in full. They have been atoned for. I'm here taking your place. So put your trust in me. For those who heard that final phrase, what he was actually communicating to them was, look, your wait is over. You've been waiting for this Messiah to come. I am that Messiah. Your debt is going to be paid in full. And at that precise moment, a change was taking place. And everything was going to be different from now on. He's saying, you won't need to go through someone else for the forgiveness of your sins. You won't need to go through a pastor or a priest. You can talk to God on your own. So can you begin to understand the incredible implications of the atoning death of Jesus Christ? One last scripture I want to read from 1 Peter 2. Christ carried our bodies, excuse me, our sins in his body on the cross so we would stop living for sin and start living for what is right. And you are healed because of his wounds. Years ago, a church performed an Easter drama about a carpenter's family who lived in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. And work was tough to get, so that carpenter relented, and he started making crosses for the Roman government. And then one day, his 10-year-old son, who actually worked in the carpenter shop with him and helped him make those crosses, his son came home, and he was just a mess. And he said, Dad, like... A a mob of people have taken Jesus to crucify him. And the father said, you know, he was very hurt by that because their family really loved Jesus. They'd heard him preach and teach. Some of their family members had even been healed by Jesus. So they were saddened by that news. And then their son looked up and said, and dad, there's more. They crucified Jesus on one of our crosses. And then the father tried to calm his son down. He said, oh, son, there are dozens of us that are making crosses for the Romans. They all look alike. But then the son persisted, and he said, dad, you don't understand. Last week, 
when we were making our crosses, one of them, it just was so good that I thought, I'll be like a, an artist, and I'll write my name on that cross. So when I was standing there on the side of the road, and Jesus was walking along, carrying that cross, he stumbled in front of me, and I saw my name on the cross. The if we could somehow get close to that cross, if we could somehow find the cross that Jesus was crucified on, we'd see our names there as well. I'd see Greg Nicholson right there. Like, I'd be hoping, I'm a pastor, maybe my name's not going to be there. But he died for me, he died for you. And if I was the only person in this world, he still would have come and died on that cross for me, and it would have been just my name on that cross, but it was everybody's names on that cross. If you've never placed your trust in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we offer that invitation to you today. We know it's not comfortable to come to the front in the midst of a group of people, but if you want to do that, I'm going to be right here as we sing. If you're not comfortable doing that, then just talk to me on the way out the door. Or if you have questions, Contact me. Information is on our website and and everywhere else. But if you want to believe in Jesus, if you want to repent of the sins in your life, if you want to confess that Jesus is the Lord of your life, and maybe you're at the point where you're ready to be baptized into him, we invite you to make that decision.